You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Today is week four of our teaching series, Call Out. And in this series, we are learning what it looks like to be the people, not just the person that God has called us to be. Last week, Associate Pastor Jake preached a great sermon on love. It's really the defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. If you missed it, I would encourage you to go back to listen to that on the podcast or watch it on YouTube. And really, love is this word. It's kind of a buzzword in our culture. People love love. People love talking about love, and and love is is overused in a way. And and really, when love is defined in all these different ways, and when love means everything, love ends up actually meaning nothing. And so that's really why the teaching last week is so important. It's really reframing and redefining the word love according to the teachings of Jesus. And if we want to be the people God has called us to be, we need to learn that agape, that sacrificial, and that costly kind of love. Well, today, the characteristic we're talking about is humility. Humility is what I'm calling the secret sauce of healthy relationships. I'm calling it the secret sauce because it's an essential ingredient. If we want to have healthy community, healthy relationships, we must have humility. But I'm calling it the secret sauce or the secret ingredient because no one's talking about humility. It's different than love. Everyone's talking about love. No one wants to talk about humility. In fact, you could say it like this. Everyone loves having a humble friend, but nobody wants to be humble. Everyone loves being married to someone who's humble, having friends who are humble, having coworkers or a boss especially that is humble. But who actually wants to be the person in the room who displays humility? And yet it's this secret ingredient. In our culture, humility is not a virtue. It's not a value. It's not something that's desirable. And really that's not unlike Uh, the Greek and the Roman culture in which the New Testament was written into. It makes me think about this idea of climbing to the top, or maybe you've played the game as a kid, king of the hill. Really, that's the world that we live in. We call it a dog-eat-dog world, and we're always trying to climb the ladder, assert ourselves, gain success and prestige. And it was no different in the Roman world where really you were celebrated if you got out of your you know, social standing and you moved up, if you leveled up, leveled up, leveled up. And really this is displayed and illustrated really well. If you just think about the stories that they told in that ancient culture, think about the stories, maybe you're familiar, you read them in school, the Greek and Roman myths, you know, the pantheon of gods and goddesses. And think about what happens when people told those stories, you know, imagining uh, of characters who had this ultimate kind of power. What did those Greek and Roman gods do? They did whatever they wanted, right? They, they, they stole, they lied, they cheated, you know, they ate, they got drunk, they slept with whoever they wanted. If they were angry, they got violent, they gratified every desire they wanted. And that really, in telling those stories, is actually displaying the answer to the question, what would people do if they had that kind of power? What would they do if they finally arrived at the top and they were on God-level status? They would do whatever they wanted. See, this is what happens when you make God in your own image. 
And in many ways, the American culture that we live in today is very similar to the Greek and Roman culture 2,000 years ago. I think of a specific myth. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the story of Narcissus. Maybe you're familiar with this one. Narcissus was you know, born as a baby. His dad was a god. His mom was a nymph. And then there was a fortune teller who showed up uh, to the mom. And uh, the fortune teller said, you have, you have a very beautiful baby. This is not one of those ugly babies, right? I'm going to be honest. Not every baby is beautiful right out of the gate. This was a beautiful, handsome baby boy. And everyone knew this was going to be you know, a very you know, beautiful human being. And uh, the fortune teller says, your son will live a long and prosperous life as long as he never sees himself, as long as he never looks at himself. Well, of course, you know, as the story goes, long story short, you know, there's a love interest with Echo and all this kind of drama. But eventually what happens is Narcissus gets by a pool of water and he sees his reflection and he can't look away because he's infatuated with Himself, And he stays in that spot until he withers away and eventually he dies. Well, good thing that's just a story, right? Good thing, good thing that's just a story. Or is it? I mean, I think about the story of Narcissus and I think really what it teaches us about is it teaches us about ourselves. See, we all have a tendency to fix our eyes on ourselves, to not be able to look away from ourselves. And maybe for you, it is, you know, your beauty or your handsomeness or your muscles or your hair or your social media profile. Maybe it is that kind of idea of vanity as we think of it. Or maybe for you, it's not that. It's your success. And you can't look away from your work. It's your bank account. It's the money that you get. It's your prestige. It's the amount of followers or influence that you have. Or maybe for you, it's actually, you know, gratifying the desires of your flesh. It's the entertainment it's the pleasure, it's the food, it's the drugs, it's the alcohol, it's the whatever, you know, pick your medication of choice, and you can't stop looking away from that. And so really, that's what pride does. Pride makes it impossible to take our eyes off ourselves. And pride really is the root of sin. It's the original sin we see in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they elevate themselves to God-level status, and they say, we make the rules now. We are our own king and queen now. And what happens is it leads to sin and, and the fall and destruction. And so for us, that's why humility is really going to be our secret sauce, because what pride does is it doesn't only glue your eyes to yourself, it kills relationships. Pride just destroys and makes community crumble. But what humility does is humility is going to allow us to pry our eyes off ourselves and to actually look to the needs and the interests of others. So we are going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians 2. This is one of the best teaching texts on humility in the entire Bible. And if you're taking notes, we're going to be learning three lessons. So if you can go ahead and write one, two, three, just a numbered list on your paper. We're going to learn three lessons from the text about humility. Let's go ahead and jump in to Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Let's go ahead and jump into Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Really, what we see here is that proximity to Jesus 
brings us closer to Christians. You can't get closer to Jesus without, uh, in turn, being closer to other followers of Jesus. And we all know that relationships are messy, right? And so what we see here is we see Paul talking to the church in Philippi, and he's talking about something that would make him just so happy, that would make his joy complete, is that he heard reports that there was this unity, there was this being of the same mind and same heart. And really, he's describing the result of all the blessings we have in the gospel. When we are united with Christ, when we have this fellowship with the Spirit, when we have this encouragement, when we have all these blessings from Jesus, it should lead us naturally to unity. It should lead us to the kind of love your neighbor as yourself community that Jesus taught us about. And yet, let's be real for a second. Christians aren't always nice. Christians aren't always great to get along with or easy to have a conversation with. I mean, you read the book of Acts even. You get Acts chapter 4 where the whole church is united in heart and soul and they are of the same mind. It's really what Paul's talking about here. You know, they're all truly united in this beautiful community. And then we look at, you know, our own church and it's like, but I don't know if I'm really united with that person or maybe not even just our church, but the church down the street. Maybe we have dividing lines even between our congregations, but we have to know when God looks at Boise, he doesn't see all these churches. He sees the church. Every true church that is preaching the true gospel is the church of Boise. And so for us, let's be real for a second. Christians aren't always easy to get along with. So unity in the sense of the book of Acts or really what Paul's describing here in Philippians 2, it doesn't seem that realistic. And the reality is it's not. Unity is not realistic if we're just trying to fabricate unity on our own power. If we as humans are just trying to create unity and just trying to make it happen, right? We all just need to be more united. Like you hear people kind of talking about that, but it's not going to happen if we're just trying to do it. We have to have unity empowered and and as a result of the gospel. And one of those necessary ingredients to actually make unity possible is humility. So here's our first lesson about humility. Humility makes unity possible. Humility, actually considering someone else, actually listening to someone, actually not having to fight with that person or always be right. Humility, saying sorry, right? These are the kinds of things that make unity possible without having it be uniformity. So uniformity is one version. I would say it's a false version of unity. Uniformity says everyone needs to be the exact same in order to be united. Everyone needs to think the exact same way, vote the exact same way, you know, either pick masks or no masks, right? Everyone needs to do the exact same thing, and that's how we be united. But you don't see uniformity in the early church. You see an incredible amount of diversity. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, if we want to have unity without making it uniformity, if we want to have unity in the diverse church that we live in and in the diverse city that we live in, then what we need is we need humility. We need to actually be humble enough to unite in relationships with people who maybe they think differently than we do in some ways, but we unite over the most important things. You see, you could also translate, be of the same mind, to to say, be united with one purpose. That we as a church, we, we know that the great commission God has given us and the commandments he has given us to love him and to love one another, those things really must be our top 
priorities. And so we're not going to divide in all these peripheral issues. We're not going to divide over, over things that really won't matter in the kingdom of heaven because we're going to be united with one purpose. We're going to be united in Christ and we're going to be humble enough to be okay with some of those minor disagreements. That's the first lesson we have about humility is humility makes unity possible. Let's continue through our text. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So from the moment that we are born, every single one of us begins to cry. And really what we're crying out for is for someone else to meet our needs, right? That's the definition of what it means to be an infant. You're crying for someone else to meet your needs, to change your diaper, to feed you, to burp you, to put you to sleep, right? That's what we do when we're babies. And that's really a sign of immaturity, is really crying until someone else meets your needs. But the sad reality is many people, as we grow up and as we get older, we never outgrow that tendency to actually want other people to be the ones who serve us, other people to be the ones who meet our needs. And maybe we don't you know, literally cry about it, but we just complain about it. We just nag people about it. We just kind of guilt people into serving us. Or we just assume that we are the most important person in the room and everyone else should be serving us. And so what we need to learn is we need to learn and we need to grow up in a way into humility. Now, what humility means is really it's a little bit of a misconception. Many people think humility is thinking poorly of yourselves because Paul here, in fact, he says, consider you know, one another more important or more significant than yourself. But notice he doesn't say have poor self-esteem. He doesn't say you should, you should you know, feel bad about yourself. So humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. I would define humility as thinking accurately about yourself. Humility is thinking accurately about yourself, and specifically yourself in relationship to others. So just ask yourself this question. Question, what do you think about when you think about others? What comes to mind? What do you see when you look at other people? Do you see a means to an end? Do you see people who, who, who can be used and abused for your own purposes? Because what God looks at when he sees people, even people outside of the family of faith, is God sees his own creation. This is what's called the Imago Dei, that every human being, regardless of whether they're, they're saved by grace or outside of the family of faith, every single human being is made in the image of God. And so when God sees people, just in general, he sees people that he loves and people that he loves enough to send his son to die for. Jesus died for the whole world, whether people accept that or not. And so for you, I would just challenge you to begin to look at other people through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of God who, who loves them and sees even past their brokenness and past their sins and past maybe even your disagreements with that person as someone who's created in the image of God. And then what do you see when you look at yourself? What do you see when you look at yourself? Are you thinking accurately about who you are? And there's really two sides of this. On the one hand, we're all, even those who are followers of Jesus, we're all just sinners, but we are saved by grace. Without the grace of Jesus, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. We would be, by nature, children of wrath. And so for us, we're sinners, but we're saved by God's grace. And so how valuable do you think you are to God? 
Because for us, really, we're looking for our value and our identity from all these other places. We're looking for it from our performance. We're looking for you know, your parents to tell you how valuable you are, your you know, identity from your looks, all these different ways we, we're looking for our value. But what we need to do is we need to get our value from the only unshakable place, which is getting our value from our Father in heaven. So how valuable are you to God? You're valuable enough that God would send his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what God was willing to do in order to save you and forgive you from your sins and adopt you into his family. And so I would just say, if that's, what, if that's how valuable you are to God, then just view yourself as a son or a daughter of the king and realize, realize accurately that your identity is secure in Christ. And so that's really thinking accurately about yourself in relationship with others. The the goal for Paul is not to get us to lower our mindset or lower our self-esteem. It's actually to get us to raise other people up. So here's our second lesson about humility. Humility comes from a secure identity. Humility comes from a secure identity, not from insecurity. Humility is not being insecure about who you are. Uh, Humility comes from a secure identity because here's what's happened. Here's what happens. When your identity is secure in Christ, you're not going to need validation from that other person. You're not going to need to always be right. You're not going to need to have to assert yourself. You, you don't have to climb the ladder at all costs of success and prestige because your identity is secure in who God says you are, which will never change. Right? God will never leave you nor forsake you. Your identity is secure in Christ. And what that's going to allow you to do it's going to allow you to lift up other people and consider that person's need or that person's interests above your own. It's going to allow you to be able to have a conversation without interrupting, without interjecting, without always one-upping the other person. When your identity is secure in Christ, you don't have to look for or receive that validation from other people. This is what I mean when I'm talking about humility is the secret sauce. And imagine if everyone was just living out of the secure identity in Christ we would be able to practice humility. Let's continue through our text in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So what we have in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this beautiful telling of the gospel. Some scholars think this is an early Christian him that Paul includes in his letter. Other scholars debate that Paul, you know, wrote these words original to him. Regardless of the case, we can't argue with the fact that there's this, you know, poetic progression through the text. And so what I want to do is just walk through that progression. It begins like this. Jesus is God. He existed as God. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He pre-existed before the foundation of the earth, and it's by him and through him, him all things were made. And so that's amazing. But what does Jesus, Jesus do with that power? 
What does he do with all of that prestige? Does he do what the Greek and Roman gods do? Does he use it for his own advantage? Does he use it for his own benefit? No. He actually lowers himself. And the, the, the God of the universe doesn't use his position for his own benefit, but instead he becomes a man. He becomes a man. He existed in the form of a man. And, and really the text says that Jesus emptied himself, and that can be confusing for some people, where they think that he kind of you know, uh, left his godhood or he emptied himself of his godhood. Really what he's emptying himself is not of his essence or his nature as God, but really the benefits available to him as God. This is what Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says about this. Jesus did not give up the nature of God for the nature of a servant. Rather, he displayed the nature of God in the nature of a servant. So that's really helpful. Jesus didn't leave his nature as God. He just, he took on the nature of a servant. And, and as if you, you know, couldn't think of a lower position than a baby. I mean, it astounds me that the God of the universe would humble himself to the point where he's a baby and, you know, Mary has to change his diaper. But it gets lower than that. God becomes man and then he serves people. Jesus lived his life to serve people. He allowed himself to be interrupted. He took people's requests. He spent time with with the outcasts in society. He spent time with people with leprosy, people who were unclean, tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. And he healed people. He fed people. He taught people. He lived his life in his own words, not to be served, but to serve and to give. And one of the greatest acts of this is Jesus submits to the Father. What that means is he submits to the plan of salvation that was really in the mind of God before the foundation of the earth, that the Son would die for the sins of the world. You see this all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, 15, where the plan after you know, Adam and Eve's sin to save us is there's going to be a son, and the serpent is going to bruise his heel, strike his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And as the Old Testament would unfold and more and more prophecies would come about, what we would learn is we would learn that, in fact, the Son would die for the sins of the world. And so he submits to the plan of the Father. You see the tension, the wrestling that Jesus goes through in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then he prays that prayer, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. Humility. And then, as if that was not enough to just die for the sins of the world, he dies on a cross. So it goes even lower than that. Dying on a cross, crucifixion is one of the worst ways in human history that's ever been invented to die. In fact, in Latin, cross is a four-letter word, crux. It was one of those words, you, wouldn't, you didn't say that word at the dinner table because it, it was impolite and considered vulgar. It was only reserved for the worst of the worst criminals or for the lowest of the low. And so Jesus takes not just a death in our place, but this horrific, humiliating, excruciating death in our place. But the story doesn't end there. See, Jesus didn't stay dead. See, after the death came the resurrection. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. And then the Father exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name above every name. The name above Every name. And so this is the beautiful story of the, the lowering and the humbling of the Son, but actually the exaltation and where all of history is going is when all things will be united under the kingship of Christ. So here's what that means for you you can declare Jesus as Lord either now or later. 
That's what Paul is saying, where he's saying one day everyone will know that Jesus is Lord. He's not talking about a mass conversion where everyone's going to heaven regardless of whether they believe in this lifetime. What he's saying is one day when Jesus returns on judgment day, it's going to be evident that Jesus actually is the king of the universe. And so you can say Jesus is Lord now in your life, and that results in joy. It results in a purpose and a calling on your life. It results in forgiveness of sins and salvation. I want to call on you to make that declaration, not just with your mouth, but also with your life, to say Jesus is Lord. It'll result in joy on that day for those who have, who have put Jesus as their Lord, and it'll result in shame for those who haven't. Some will say Jesus is Lord with their head bowed in shame and regret. And I don't want that to be you. I don't want that to be anyone. And the Father doesn't want that to be anyone. He is, he is, he is slow to anger. He doesn't want anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance. So today, would you turn towards Jesus? That's the gospel we just talked about. Would you believe in the gospel? And would you pray and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life? I want to also invite you to take that step of baptism to commit your life to following Jesus. We actually, on this Sunday, have two baptisms in our in-person gathering. So make sure you look out for those in uh, this next week on social media. But we have a baptism class, uh, Baptism 101, at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can watch that course, answer some questions there, and you can actually sign up to get baptized. But here, really, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we also learn our third lesson about humility. Humility is fueled by the gospel. So you might ask, like, how could we actually lift one another up? Do you know, like, that guy's a jerk. That guy's, that, that girl's hard to get along with. How can we actually do that? It's fueled. It's powered by the gospel. And there are two sides of this. There's the example of Christ. As a Christian, you are called to become like Christ. You're called to become conformed into the image of Christ. See, a servant is not greater than his or her master. And if Jesus is our master and he demonstrated that great level of humility, then we must be humble as well. Necessarily, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be humble. We have to learn to wash one another's feet. We have to learn to serve one another and bear one another's burdens. And so, so we must, it's fueled by the gospel in that we, we, we're compelled to be humble because of the example of Christ. But then the second side of that is really the future exaltation. That if Jesus is raised from the dead, then we will be raised up with Christ as well. And if Jesus is exalted by the Father, then we, in fact, will be exalted by the Father, even if we don't get that, that, that exaltation in this present life. Even if, you know, you serve in secret, you, you do things, you love people, and no one gives you recognition. If you don't get famous or if your name isn't great in this life, don't worry about that because your name is great with your Father in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about your Father in heaven sees even what you do in secret, and he rewards you. And so it's not about getting greatness in the eyes of this world. It's actually about being great in the eyes of God. Look at this teaching from Jesus in Matthew 23, 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so we don't display humility just to get a reward. We don't do it as kind of this manipulation on God, like, I'm going to be humble, make sure you saw that so that we can get rewarded later. But it's good to know. It's reassuring to know 
that even if we, that person doesn't say thank you, even if you don't get the recognition right here, right now, that God exalts those who are humble. So we might say it like this, Jesus humbled himself for us, we must humble ourselves for others. If Jesus humbled himself for us, and that's how we are saved and experience the gospel, then we necessarily must humble ourselves for others. But it's difficult, right? Humility is one of those difficult character traits to live out in our lives. And on our own power, on our own strength, we're not going to be able to do it. It has to be empowered by the gospel. So three practices for us today to actually cultivate humility in our lives. The first one, serve in secret. Serve in secret. Don't serve with a selfie stick. It's important to serve, and serving other people and and doing those lowly tasks does foster humility a little bit. But if you really want to get the the maximum uh, benefit out of what you're doing to serve, serve, but don't tell anyone about it. Serve, but don't, you know, highlight. In your marriage, do the dishes, and then don't, you know, say to your spouse, man, doesn't the kitchen look clean, right, you know? And we do that sometimes, don't we? We draw attention to ourselves. Uh, Richard Foster, in his book on spiritual discipline, says this, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. So it's helpful. It helps discipline and kind of keep our fleshly desires at bay to to serve. But if you really want to transform your desires, you're going to learn to serve in hiddenness. You're going to learn to to do those tasks without needing a thank you, without needing recognition, without a selfie stick, without posting it online. And you're going to serve in secret and you're going to grow and be transformed to be more and more like Christ. Second practice is you don't always have to be right. I mean, don't always be right. I mean, in your conversations, it's not just in our acts, in our actions, that we must demonstrate humility. We need to demonstrate humility in our conversations. And I think this is really one of those areas. I see Christians at large, Christians in our culture, uh, not being humble. Uh, honestly, I, th- I think about all the fights on Facebook, all the, all the division, all of the arguments, all of those kind of things. And I just think, man, so many Christians... That maybe they feel like they're speaking the truth, but they're not speaking the truth in love. They're not speaking the truth with gentleness and respect. And what happens is we, we kind of act like in the social media age where you have, a, you have a platform, you have voice, you can just get all your thoughts out there. What happens is we act like every hill is a hill worth dying on. And when we're dying on every hill and we're having every argument, when we always have to be right, what we're actually doing is we're sacrificing our ability to preach the gospel in the moments when it matters the most. So I would just challenge you with that. Do you, are you someone who always has to be right? Are you someone who always has to get the last word in? And I would challenge you to practice holding your tongue, to practice secrecy, not just in your actions, but secrecy in your arguments, that you would be someone who actually learns to listen lovingly, Listen incarnationally, even if you disagree with the other person, but you value them because you're open to hearing them and and, and you don't have to prove them wrong. You don't always have to be right. And the third practice today is simply obey God's will. Obey God's will. We, We are not just called to humble ourselves before one another. We are called to humble ourselves before the Lord. And what that means is in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father's will and his plan for his life, we must submit to the Father's plan for our lives, no matter how difficult that may be. 
I think about the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer might be a prayer for you to memorize and to meditate on and to pray in your life. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I love that word nevertheless in there. Jesus voices his own will. He tells God what he wants. Take this cup for me. And maybe for you, it's important to do that. Voice your will, voice your opinion, voice your, your thoughts and your heart to God. But then would you also say that word nevertheless? Nevertheless, even if, even if that doesn't happen, not my will be done, but yours. But your will be done. And what that's going to mean is when we truly think about God's will, we're going to learn to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're going to notice there are sins still in our lives. There are areas of temptation and weakness that, that the Holy Spirit is trying to chip away and rid us of and cleanse us of. And we're going to say, we're going to say yes. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to repent from those things. And we're going to turn towards God. And then in a positive sense, the, the calling and the cost of our discipleship, when we realize what God is calling us to, we're going to say yes to him. We're going to humble ourselves and say, well, you know, that's, that's a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Or that's, that's a lot more than I thought I was signing up for. And yet, not my will be done, but yours be done. See, here's the thing about humility. Humility, it's not going to make you great in the eyes of the world. But I promise you, it'll make you great in the eyes of your Father in heaven. And that's what matters most. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.